to you from inside the European Union. For now. With Alex Clark, Fiona Healy, Mimi Mao, Mateusz Malenta, Haritina Mogashanu, Ian Morrison, Benjamin Shaw and Charlie Walker. The Jodcast, July 2016 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Fiona and joining me in the studio today for the first time ever... Uh, as presenters uh, are Alex and Minnie. Hi guys. Hi. Hey. Uh, so so this is Alex's first time as a Jodcast presenter, although you'll have heard his name before because he's it done... Is indeed. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, done... I'm no, normally an editor, yes. but today I'm, I'm speaking. Yeah. <laughs> did, uh, did someone make you do this or was it a personal choice? No, I thought it was about time to yeah. get uh, onto this end of the, uh, of the production. It's line. the yeah. fun end. It's, yeah. yeah, it's a good end to be on. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. And Minnie, Minnie, this is your first time on this side of the microphone. Definitely. Yeah. Um, um, Alex interviewed me last week for the job bite. And we had a lot of fun, and Charlie said to me, oh, well, you can get involved by presenting, and he sent me an email with the subject, Jodcats. And I got really excited, because I thought that meant that the Jodcasters were called Jodcats. <laughs> Turns out it was just a typo. <laughs> In the show this time, Ben and Charlie interview Sterl Finney about pulsars and gravitational waves. And Ian Morrison and Haritina Mogashanu take a look at what's happening in the July night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Matt with this month's news. This month in the news. The LIGO team has officially confirmed another gravitational wave detection. GW151226 was observed on the Boxing Day, the 26th of December 2015. Located at the distance of approximately 1.4 billion light-years, it is the second such event ever confirmed, alongside GW150924 announced in February, and possible but not confirmed event LVT151012 detected in October last year. The recorded signal was much weaker than in the case of GW150914, making it more difficult to detect. The signal was also more spread out in time and lasted one second as compared with only 0.2 seconds for the previous event. Even though hidden in the data and initially indistinguishable from the noise, the team relied on sophisticated computer algorithms to extract the meaningful data. After a possible candidate was identified, a match-filtering technique was used to obtain a rough estimate of the properties of the system. The derived masses of the black holes just before the collision were 14.2 and 7.5 solar masses, which is considerably less than 36 and 29 masses of Sun that produced the previous event. The LIGO team is confident that the less massive object is indeed a black hole, with a 99% probability of its mass being more than 4.5 solar masses, which is the highest theoretical mass of a neutron star. The black hole that was created after the collision has an estimated mass of 20.8 solar masses, meaning that the equivalent of the entire mass of the Sun was radiated away in the form of gravitational waves. Additional analysis showed that the more massive pre-collision and the final black holes were both spinning, 
with the black hole that was formed after the collision rotating rather rapidly with its spin at 70% of its maximum value. As was the case for GW 150914, the exact position of the new event on the sky is not well known and cannot be localised better than to within 850 square degrees. The detection of GW 151226 proved that LIGO is more than capable of detecting gravitational waves and scientists can soon start using it as a tool for probing the universe never seen before. It also failed to show any deviations from the general relativity, which still holds strong after 100 years since its first publication. Pulsars are known as one of the most precise clocks in the universe. The radiation observed on Earth arrives with unprecedented regularity. Pulsars also slow down in their radiation, meaning that over longer periods of time, the ticks of their radiation will become out of sync with our predictions. But this effect can be easily accounted for, and appropriate corrections can be applied. However, some pulsars experience unpredictable changes in their spin frequency, or the rate at which they slow down, known as glitches. The exact reason for these rapid changes is currently unknown, with the best possible explanation involving a sudden transfer of the angular momentum from the inner neutron superfluid to the outer crust. Glitches are usually present in relatively young, non-recycled pulsars, such as Vela or Crab, and have been observed for many years in such environments. They are, however, extremely rare for the millisecond pulsars, which are believed to be old objects recycled thanks to the transfer of matter from the nearby companion. Until last month, only one millisecond pulsar has been known to show glitching behaviour. PSR B1821 24A. New glitch discovered in PSR J0613 0200 was found in the data recorded as a part of the European Pulsar Timing Array and published in a paper led by James McKee from the Jodrell-Back Centre for Astrophysics. First discovered in 1995, it has been timed to a very high precision over the combined time of almost 14 years. The new analysis combines the data from a number of telescopes, Jodrell-Back Lovell Telescope, French Nankai Radio Telescope, 100-metre Effersberg Radio Telescope in Germany, and Dutch Westerbork Synthesis Radio Telescope. A sharp deviation from the timing model was found in the combined dataset, indicating the possible glitch. The possibility of the instrumental errors was ruled out, as no similar deviations were found in the timing data obtained over the same period of time for different pulsars. By fitting the different models to the data, astronomers were able to derive the parameters of the glitch. It turned out to be the smallest glitch ever recorded, with the fractional change of the frequency of the order of 10 to minus 12 and the fractional change in the rate at which the pulsar rotation slows down of the order of 10 to minus 4. The previously detected millisecond pulsar glitch had a fractional frequency change more than three times larger.
The presence of the glitch raised some questions on the reliability of the pulsar timing array, which uses millisecond pulsars to hunt for gravitational waves and rely on very precise models and measurements of the pulsar radiation arrival times. And PSR J061300 is one of the objects used for this purpose. It was shown that the glitch was small enough not to influence the reliability of the timing data, and the glitch could be easily accounted for. By calculating the expected millisecond pulsar glitch rates, the team estimated a 50% probability of a glitch being detected in the next 10 years in the set of pulsars monitored as a part of the International Pulsar Timing Array. Considering how small this glitch was, scientists are confident that any other event, very likely larger, will not be missed. There is no end to new discoveries coming from the New Horizons mission. The probe provided scientists around the globe with a wealth of information when it collected the data during its Pluto flyby earlier this year. It was the first time when we were able to see the surface of this dwarf planet in high resolution, revealing features no one was expecting to find on this cold and distant world. One of the most surprising discoveries was the indication of a relatively recent geological activity. With Pluto being only around 20% of the diameter of Earth and just above 0.2% of its mass, it is very unlikely that the dwarf planet was able to sustain the internal heating mechanism to an extent that allows any significant changes to occur on the surface. One of the recent studies attempt to solve this mystery. Published at the beginning of June in Nature, it focused on the Sputnik Planum, part of the famous Pluto's heart, with the area of around 900,000 square kilometres, it is one of the biggest and most prominent areas on the Pluto, covering around 5% of its total surface. Surprisingly, no impact craters have been found in high-resolution photographs covering the whole area, suggesting that this surface is very young and was formed no longer than 10 million years ago. This means that it must have been a geologically active place, with the surface renewed and all the possible impact craters smoothed out at the timescales of less than 10 million years. To find the cause of these surface changes, scientists focus on the unusual sail-like features, irregular polygons, tens of kilometres across, which cover the entire Sputnik planum. These bulge-like structures rise above the surface of the plane, in the centres, and the edges sink in. With the information from the spectroscopic mapping performed by the New Horizons, the abundance of molecular nitrogen, methane and carbon monoxide ice was found, with the nitrogen being the dominant component. Water ice has also been found on the polygon's borders and is believed to be trapped in the large blocks that flowed in the sea of nitrogen ice as the water ice has lower density than the solid nitrogen. It is therefore possible that Pluto is a home to a more exotic version of familiar icebergs. 
With the nitrogen ice layer few kilometers thick, it is very likely that the convection occurs in that region, and the individual polygons are large convection cells. The convection needs a source of power, and it is possible that a small amount of heat is still released from the radioactive decay in the center of the planet, fueling the whole process. The amount of heat release is very small, but the convection would still be possible. Numerical simulations show that the extent of the polygons could be explained by the convection of nitrogen ice several kilometers in thickness when favorable conditions are met and the surface renewal time of around 500,000 years, much shorter than the required 10 million years. Even though the current state of the Sputnik planum can be explained, it is still unknown how exactly it came to existence. The size of the basin, its depth, and the presence of mountains on its edges suggest it is an impact crater. The reason why such a large amount of nitrogen accumulated in there still remains a mystery, but hopefully, with more data made available every day, we will soon solve it as well. Thanks for that, Matt. Uh, so we have some interviews now, but I just have to point out that they're somewhat backdated as we recorded them uh, at the same time that the gravitational waves were discovered. So uh, Jesus, that's a while ago now, is yeah. it? Yeah. So now we have Ben and Charlie interviewing Stel Finney about pulsars and gravitational waves. Hello, I'm Ben. I'm here with Charlie and we're interviewing Professor Stel Finney from Caltech. Stirl is a professor of theoretical astrophysics and also an executive officer for astronomy and astrophysics. He did his uh, bachelor's degree at Caltech in 1980 before moving on to do a PhD at Cambridge in 1983 under the supervision of Lord Martin Rees, who is now the Astronomer Royal. He is here today to do a talk on turning low-mass X-ray binaries into millisecond pulsars and back again and again. Hi, Stirl. Thanks for joining us on the Jodcast. Pleasure to be here. So... You're here to do a talk today on how low-mass X-ray binaries evolve to and from millisecond pulsars. Could you give us an idea of what those two objects actually are and how we think they effectively turn into each other? So uh, X-ray binaries are neutron stars orbited by a companion star, which is uh, so close to it that it's losing mass, and the mass is then falling onto the neutron star after spiraling in, uh, in orbits around the neutron star. And when it falls down, it emits about 10% of its rest mass energy in heat, and that heat makes the surface of the neutron star very hot, so it glows in X-rays. Um, and those are that's why they're called X-rays, because they emit X-ray, and binaries, because there's a companion star supplying the mass, so it's two stars. Um, <clears throat> the millisecond pulsars, most of them also were binaries, so there's a neutron star and a star orbiting it. And in some cases, it is close enough that mass is falling onto it. In other cases, it's not quite close enough. Um, And people have long suspected that these two were related to each other. And the traditional story for 30 or 40 years now has been that uh, X-ray binaries accrete mass onto the neutron star. And as they do that, the neutron star spins faster and faster as it gets angular momentum. Um, it buries the magnetic field of the neutron star, and that's how you make rapidly spinning low magnetic field neutron stars like the ones we see in the millisecond pulsars. And then the companion star, when it has lost enough mass, it shrinks, and it's all supposed to stop. 
And the big puzzle of the last few years is that we've seen pulsars uh, with millisecond pulsars with companions, which turned into X-ray binaries and then turned back into millisecond pulsars, and in one case has done it again. And it was supposed to happen once every 100 million years. We've now seen several changes in the last 10 years, so there's clearly a, a problem with the standard story. <laughs> what does the observational signature look like of this switch? Oh, so the switch is basically the X-rays drop dramatically in luminosity, so the accretion, the matter falling onto the neutron star, is, uh, almost completely stops. And then the radio emission, uh, which is sort of believed to come from just the sort of naked spinning neutron star, turns on again. Um, <clears throat> and then when the accretion, uh, when the X-rays brighten up, then the radio disappears again. So it's sort of a switch between the two states. So the fact that it's accreting actually prevents the pulsar from emitting in the radio. Right, it stops the radio pulsations. And in some cases, we still see X, sort of weak X-ray pulsations because parts of the neutron star are hotter than other parts. So you can still see X-ray modulation, but the radio turn, turns off. Is that because the, um, the radio signal is actually being absorbed, or is it because it's being prevented from falling onto the, the certain uh, neutron star? I think most people thought it was being prevented. I think it's now recent results have made it less clear. I think the... Nature is often more sophisticated than simple theories. <laughs> so do we have simultaneous data from X-ray and radio telescopes that show these switches happening together in both bands? In one case, we were very lucky, and it was uh, nearly simultaneous. Typically, they're ga it's especially it's hard to get continuous time coverage, so typically there's sort of days or weeks gap, so the time of the switch is not generally known very more precisely than a day or a week, but in, in one case it clearly was switching quite rapidly. And the, the process of uh, observing in the radio and in the X-ray is very different. Am I right in thinking that most X-ray telescopes come from space, are based in space? Yeah, I think all X-ray telescopes are based in space because the X-rays don't get through the Earth's atmosphere, so the only way to see them is to go above the atmosphere. So what do we know about the evolutionary history of the two stars that eventually will come together to produce a system like this. While these stars are on the main sequence, what, what well, type of stars are we talking about? To make a neutron star, is believed you need to start with a star whose mass is greater than about 10 or 12 times the mass of the sun, so maybe 10 to 30 times the mass of the sun. But the companions for the, the both the X-ray binaries and the millisecond pulsars all seem to be descendants of stars like the Sun, or even a bit less massive than the Sun, maybe a little bit more massive than the Sun, but essentially Sun-like. <clears throat> but in many cases, what we see are just tiny little remnants of them. In the simplest cases, uh, the fate of the Sun, if it's left on its own, is to it will become a red giant, and then a second phase of red, uh, extreme red giant evolution that will lose some of its envelope and end its life as a, a white dwarf whose mass is a half or a little more than a half the present mass of the sun. We see pulsars with white dwarfs orbiting them, which clearly have just evolved and lost their mass, but in this case onto the neutron star rather than into interstellar space. Um, <clears throat> but in many of the most interesting X-ray binaries, they're actually little stars of about uh, from three-tenths the mass of the Sun to even just the mass of Jupiter. Um, the typical ones are a few hundredths of the mass of the Sun. And in those cases, what's believed to have happened is that even before the star had evolved 
to be, become a red giant, it was already losing mass to the neutron star. And so what you're seeing is just sort of little, the last little bits of the star is it's already lost 98% of its mass onto the, onto the neutron star. So. Uh, in the terms of neutron star populations as a whole, how, how common or rare are binary neutron stars with companions? Because to have a neutron star, you've got to have a supernova. Um, so does yeah. that usually disrupt a bound system? Yeah, so usually, tip, uh, is roughly 99% of the... We believe that most neutron stars, like most stars, actually were born in binaries. So the typical star is not like the sun, but it actually has one or more companions orbiting it. Um, but the neutron stars, by and large, are single for exactly the reason you mentioned, that there's a big explosion, a lot of mass is lost, the neutron star gets a recoil velocity... And so probably 99 times out of 100, the neutron star loses its companion. So the X-ray binaries and millisecond pulsars are descendants of the lucky 1%, which <clears throat> retain their companion. Um, but they're actually quite common observationally because once they get um, ordinary pulsars that are born in supernova explosions only last for about 10 million years. Whereas the ones that are recycled in the binaries and spun up and have their magnetic field lowered uh, last for, <clears throat> say, 500 times longer than that. So even though they're being born at a very small rate, they live 500 times longer. So they're roughly equal numbers, actually, that we can see. Just coming back to something you said a few minutes ago about sometimes we, the companion star is as low mass as Jupiter. Presumably it has quite a low luminosity. So is there any way of actually seeing these companions in the optical can we actually see this system and separate the two objects uh, so uh, we can see them in two ways one is the uh, thing that i've been spending a lot of time for the last couple of years is that the pulsar in many of these cases is uh, losing energy its rotational energy in very relativistic particles and gamma rays with a luminosity which can be say a hundred times larger than that of the sun and so these poor little remains of stars next to them, which are about the radius of the sun away from the neutron star, are being blasted by these gamma rays and relativistic particles, and they're heated up to very high temperatures. Mm. Um, so most of their luminosity is actually not their own intrinsic luminosity that they're generating or the heat they're losing from the center, but it's actually re-radiating the heat that's being put on them. So it's just like the Earth would be very cold if you turned the sun away, but yeah. the warmth of our Earth is provided by the sun. And in this case, the warmth of these companion stars and planets around the pulsars is actually being provided by the pulsar. But it's not somewhere you would like to live, right? It's being like <laughs> in the living being heated up to roasty temperatures by a proton beam, an accelerator <laughs> that has big radioactivity to stay away warnings on it. Aside from being, being heated up um, by, by these massive blasts of radiation, is there anything else that happens to the, the companion stars to change in form or shape? The heating causes them to swell up. Essentially, it uh, bottles up heat that would be trying to escape from the center of the stars. So many of these stars, even though they're very low mass and would ordinarily be very small stars, in fact, are observed to be much bigger than they 
ought to be. And uh, that's one of the topics that I've been working on is understanding how they get swelled up by the by the external heating. Is that mainly the, the surface layers of the star or does it go mm. right to the core? Can it disrupt it, the fusion in the star itself? Yeah, in fact, uh, I've shown that in the, they some of the stars, the lower mass ones, can be swelled up so much that the temperature and density in their center gets dropped so much that the fusion in the center completely turns off and so they're basically just living on the residual heat plus the heat from the pulsar on the outside. Yeah, so it has very dramatic effects on, on them. So what would be the ultimate fate of a system like this? I think that's one of the still unresolved questions. The When these systems were first discovered, it was, it was seen that you can actually observe plasma being blown off these stars that we can see because it causes delays in the radio pulses and absorption of the radio pulses from from them so people thought aha there are millisecond pulsars which don't have companions but we think must have had them in the past because otherwise they couldn't be made to spin that rapidly if they hadn't accreted material but there's some which don't have any companion at all and so it was thought that maybe you could just evaporate the companions into nothingness by this process and then you would be left with a single millisecond pulsar I think that's less clear now that the amount of material that's being lost is probably not enough to completely evaporate the stars. And so they may be end up as sort of just Jupiter's or a few times Jupiter's mass orbiting the the companion star and not completely disappeared. But I think that's an interesting and still so unsolved question. A that's, a, that's a pretty cool thing to think about, actually. Thinking about compact objects in binary systems uh, rotate, rotating around each other immediately brings to mind um, a topical subject that we were listening to just last week, um, which is uh, generation of gravitational waves. So you are also very heavily involved in gravitational waves uh, mm-hmm. and, and searching for them. Um, but first, could you tell us a little bit about whether we'd ever be able to detect gravita- gravitational waves from a system like these uh, the second pulsar companion systems that you're describing? Not from most of them. Uh, if uh, the European Space Agency and maybe NASA uh, build the laser interferometer space antenna, which is sensitive to much lower frequency gravitational waves than the uh, LIGO, which announced its discovery last week, um, some of the nearby pulsar binaries could be detected with LISA in our own galaxy and that would be interesting, but probably not earth-shaking. Um, Lisa would also detect hundreds of thousands of other white dwarf binaries in our galaxy and merging black holes of much bigger masses in the early universe. And um, but yeah, I think it's not a that's not the primary goal of gravitational waves. I think this would not be learning about these systems particularly. So LIGO announced last Thursday that gravitational waves had actually been detected from mm-hmm. a pair of black holes that were spinning around each other. And I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that that has opened up an entirely new era of astronomy. Yep, it has. Mm-hmm. So could you tell us a little bit, were you, were you involved at all in the, in the press conference? Were you watching it? Were you there? What, what were you doing when <laughs> they were announced? Uh, I, I was watching the press conference. I'd just been on a PhD exam in the Netherlands, and they in the room next door, they screened the, the press conference. So 
because I'm from Caltech, where LIGO is headquartered and where it's been built and designed and uh, for the last 30-plus years, I had heard lots of rumors and increasingly precise rumors <laughs> well before the press conference, so maybe it wasn't a great surprise uh, to me, but still, I mean, it's a wonderful culmination, I guess, the... I arrived at Caltech in 1985, and my colleagues there had put in three times a proposal to the National Science Foundation to start design work on what became LIGO and been turned down every time. Mm. And finally, in the second year that I was at Caltech in 1987, the first of the LIGO proposals was accepted. Yeah, in 1991, after the second double neutron star system was discovered, I figured out how to calculate the rate. And that rate of merging neutron stars was used in the sort of setting the sensitivity goals for what eventually became advanced LIGO. So, yeah, so it's been a very, very long time, and it's You've wonderful to see the fruit. Right yeah. Were you one of the, um, the physicists who placed a bet on gravitational waves being detected before 2010? Uh, no, I did not. I did not place any bets. <laughs> I, I, perhaps I should have taken big odds. I think some of my colleagues were very optimistic. I was always a bit pessimistic. I mean, I was optimistic that they would eventually be discovered, but I, I wasn't optimistic that the the rates were as high as some people thought. And so you you were there somewhere underneath. Your calculations were there in advance. LIGO. Were you going to be up for a Nobel Prize? Uh, no, I, I mean, I, I think the people who deserve the Nobel Prize are the people who actually built that amazingly sensitive experiment, I think. So coming back to the, the science of what was actually announced on, on Thursday, could you tell us a little bit about what was announced and what it looked like? Uh, yeah, so the announcement was uh, the detection of gravitational waves from two black holes, each roughly 30 times the mass of the sun, which uh, were caught in their final phases of spiraling together. Uh, and the reason they spiral together is because as they orbit each other, they uh, wiggle space-time, and the wiggles propagate out as gravitational waves, and that takes orbital energy from the black holes. So the black hole orbits shrink just like a satellite in the Earth's atmosphere loses energy to the atmosphere and spirals in until it hits the ground. Um, but here, rather than heat, it's gravitational waves that was taking the energy away. Um, so we saw the last couple of tenths of a second of this in-spiral, um, and then you can actually see the the waveforms, which are astonishingly close to the very first waveform for such an object that was calculated by a postdoctoral scholar at Caltech, uh, Franz Pretorius, who was the first one to be able to solve Einstein's equations to get black holes to orbit each other for more than once and actually spiral <laughs> together. And the waveform looks astonishingly like that very first one. The reason I say astonishing is that that calculation assumed that the two black holes weren't spinning, mm. and it seems as if these at least were not rapidly spinning, which would have changed the waveform. So they really looked like they were two slowly rotating black holes, which merged and produced a more rapidly spinning black hole. Could you um, tell us a little bit about how you can detect the spin of a black hole? <clears throat> so the spin of a black hole in binary, which uh, you see from the gravitational waves, so there are basically two stages. So in the stage when the two stars or two black holes are orbiting each other, if they're, if they're spinning and the spins are not parallel to each other, so they're spinning sort of with in each in a different direction, then <clears throat> uh, the 
plane of the orbit gets warped up and down, and so you see a, a modulation of the signal as the, essentially as the black holes precess around the, around the orbital axis, and then the, uh, that causes the orbit plane to wobble up and down. And we didn't see any of that wobbling in this system. Um, the other way that you can determine spin is in the final black hole after the two collide with each other. Um, you see what's called ring down, and that's the black hole is not a smooth stationary object, but it's a perturbed black hole because it's just formed from the merger of two. And so it wobbles around and radiates gravitational waves from the wobbles. And if it's spinning rapidly, then there are different kinds of wobbles and they occur more rapidly. And so you can measure the spin of the final one by looking at the last wobbles as it settles itself down. And looking at the final, um, mm. the graph, which uh, was shown by LIGO, the ring down is the, the attenuating. Yeah, it's uh, sort of the fading at the, the end peak. after after the peak when the two black holes when the two black holes first merge, then you get the peak emission, and then it gradually tails off as it settles down into one smooth black hole, which doesn't radiate anymore. Uh, and another amazing thing about uh, well, the final product is how accurately you can measure things like the final spin and the final mm -hmm. mass of the black hole, and that's all uh, tied up in the original equations, which uh, which have been solved. Is that right? Yeah, I, th I think so. The precision that comes from matching the waveform to actual supercomputers' calculations of what Einstein's equations actually predict very precisely. If you want only a rough estimate, it's sort of fairly easy to get an idea because the gravitational waves come out at, at twice the orbital frequency. And so as the two black holes spiral together, the orbital frequency goes up, and that's why you see the frequency rising. And then when the two black holes' horizons start merging, that's the end of the signal. And so from looking at the frequency of the waves before the uh, the peak of the emission and the frequency at the peak of emission, you can essentially get the masses of the two black holes and the mass of the final black hole approximately. But if you want it to a few percent precision, then you have to compare with the supercomputer calculations. And you can also fairly accurately tell the, the distance to the final black mm -hmm. hole, um, which is which is something that I didn't think about very well beforehand. But could you explain how we can so accurately determine the distance right. to something that we can't really mm -hmm. see? Yeah, so so the I mean it's a little bit like if you look if you if you had a telescope and you were looking at a light bulb and the light bulb had a gigantic sign on it that said 100 watts then because it had the sign on it that said 100 watts you could measure how much light you were getting at your little your eye or your detector at your telescope and then from comparing those two you could determine the distance by seeing how the farther away it is the fainter it would look and but just since it says 100 watts you know exactly how bright so this is the same uh, principle as using type 1a supernova as standard candles it's even better than that because type 1a supernovae we don't actually they don't actually come with an, an answer that says how bright they are we've seen them in nearby galaxies and we think the distant ones are kind of like the nearby ones and we apply corrections but the gravitational waves are really much more precise because the the thing which is causing the orbit to spiral together is the loss of energy in gravitational waves and since you can see the frequency of the orbit going up, you know exactly the rate at which energy is being lost to gravitational waves. And then when you measure the amplitude of the gravitational wave signal, it's just like seeing how faint the light bulb is. But it, in this case, you know exactly how much energy was being emitted because you can see the frequency changing. So it's really like the one that says, I'm 100 watts. You know exactly how much power is being emitted. So it's a, it's a distance measurement that's completely independent to the electromagnetic spectrum. Yeah. It's how it opens up loads of implications 
for for more physics that hasn't really been considered before. I, I think it is probably most likely to work the the other way that because we know the distances to these events, if we start looking for electromagnetic signals, uh, maybe not from two black holes, but from two neutron stars or neutron star black hole systems, which also ought to be detected by LIGO. If there's any question about the identification, we can compare the distance to the electromagnetic source to the distance from the gravitational wave source and be more sure that it's correct. And that's important because from the gravitational waves alone, the positions are never going to be very good. And the positions for this case is... uh, you know, sort of like looking through a window and saying it's somewhere out through that window. And in the best cases, it will be kind of like saying it's somewhere in your hand held at arm's length in the sky. And there's hundreds of thousands of galaxies in those regions. So being sure that you've got the right one, will it'll be useful to have the distance information. How could we better localize where this event happened? So there's some room for... So this initial detection was just based on the two LIGO detectors in the United States, which were the only ones operating and sensitive enough to see it. Um, There's a similar detector being constructed near Pisa in Italy, which uh, hopefully will come online near the end of 2016. Um, and with three detectors, you can determine the position much more accurately than just with with two. Um, it will get even better when another detector, uh, LIGO, is sent copies of its equipment to India, and there will be a LIGO India, uh, which was just approved last week uh, by the Indian government. <clears throat> and that one will localize things. But again, it will still only be like your hand at arm's length. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so for really determining you know which galaxy and where in the galaxy it is is going to depend on finding some kind of radio or light signal from it um, that it will be coincident in time and distance and people will dis- dis- you know, have long arguments about whether that was the right association but hopefully some of them will become clear enough that we can really confidently dis- determine it. So the event that was reported last Thursday, there was absolutely no electromagnetic counterpart to that event. Lots of people looked for electromagnetic counterparts. Lots of things go bump in the sky when you look over a very large area for things that go bump. And there have been claims that there was a bump in the gamma rays. Um, I think, you know, it's very hard to be confident that they were actually associated with the gravitational waves, but there's an enormous effort by lots of astronomers who were very excited about finding uh, counterparts. With the two black holes, if it's two black holes without any matter around them, there's no reason at all to expect any electromagnetic radiation at all, because it's just two pieces of vacuum space-time putting each other together, and there's no reason to excite uh, radio or X-ray or optical waves at all. So it would be a great surprise for physics if that were discovered and real. There's there's a huge effort, and as I say, the LIGO should also be de- detecting events involving disruption of neutron stars, and then the material that's thrown out, you'll have radioactive decay of the mm-hmm. neutron-rich material, and there should be sort of miniature supernovae associated with those. So... So there's an enormous effort to look for look for things, and I hope those they'll succeed soon. I'm curious to know that if we could actually have seen this event electromagnetically, if the luminosity of this black hole event was electromagnetic, what would it compare to? Say, how bright would it be compared to say a a core collapse supernova or a gamma ray burst? 
Uh, I think the best way to say it is if, if our eyes were sensitive to the gravitational waves and could actually absorb all of them, this event would have been much brighter than the full moon at wow. Earth, wow. even though it's one, 1. 1.2 billion light years away. It would have been for a, you know, the tenth of a second, it would have been brighter than the full moon. So a very brief <laughs> new full moon. Right. Mm. I wonder how many times they go off mm. in the uh, what, what Do you know if there's any particular rate that's been estimated this is only one event but uh, this is what yeah so the, the, the i mean it was seen in only 16 days of data and i think all the evidence is that that's about the rate that there's one of these that that near enough for ligo to see well roughly one every couple of weeks that's still ligo this event was relatively nearby in the mm. sort of in the sense of the total size of the universe so mm. i think you know if you ask out to the to a sort of redshift of one encompassing half the life and half the uh, galaxies in the universe is probably more than one a day of this sort of, this sort of event happening. An interesting, um, an interesting point that uh, LIGO is sensitive to, is it right to say LIGO is sensitive to the whole sky with electromagnetic uh, telescopes? You've obviously, you've got the Earth in the way, but with gravitational waves, uh, they flow right through the earth. Yeah, so, so so this this event, the the best localization that LIGO was able to provide was that it was actually in the southern sky, but it was detected by the two LIGO detectors in North America. So the gravitational waves went through the Earth to the LIGO detectors rather than coming from above. So yeah, so the passing through the Earth is no problem at all for gravitational waves. <laughs> Do gravitational waves get attenuated at all? Because if, if I throw a stone into a pond and the ripples sort of mm -hmm. spread out, the internal friction in the water will, the, the amplitude of those waves will gradually decrease the further you go away from the source. Is the same true of gravitational waves? In, in principle, yes. So the as the gravitational waves propagate through the universe, they're wiggling everything in the universe up and down. Uh, so they do lose energy, and in particular, the most effective way is if they pass by binary star systems, where they there are two masses that can couple to them. Uh, <clears throat> so in principle, they lose a bit of energy. In practice, even going from you know, one edge of the universe to the other, the amount of energy loss is really tiny. Mm. So... There's a little bit, but it's not like the pond that if you wait while enough, long enough, it will become completely, completely still. The gravitational waves can happily go across the universe, and they could still keep going if, <laughs> if the universe had been around long enough for them to have kept going. And um, th this is happening all the time with lots and lots of different sources all over the universe. Mm. So really, even though we can't detect it just yet, there is this background of interfering waves that's moving around all the time. Yeah, so so the LIGO is really just opening up the beginning. LIGO is sort of sensitive to gravitational waves whose frequency is like that of sort of the, the lower half of the piano keyboard, sort of 30 hertz up to middle C roughly is the range that LIGO is sensitive to. But there's a whole huge spectrum of, in particular, the most interesting are lower frequency waves. So I, I mentioned uh, the laser interferometer space antenna, which is somewhat 
similar to LIGO, but with arms instead of four kilometers, arms of millions of kilometers long. Yeah, Ben referred to it earlier as LIGO in space, and you were the chairman of it. For yeah, I was chair of the mission definition team for, for Lisa many years ago. It's, it's rather different than LIGO. It's really more like precision clock timing, so it's rather than bouncing the light back and forth, you measure single single pass, but it, it's sensitive to gravitational waves with periods of minutes to hours. And those are produced by black holes not of 10 to 30 times the mass of the sun, but black holes like the one in the center of our galaxy of 4 million solar masses and our nearest companion galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy, which is about uh, 30 million solar masses. And the Andromeda galaxy and our galaxy are falling together, and in about 5 billion years, our two galaxies will merge. And the two black holes in the center of M31 and our galaxy will spiral together and produce a really spectacular burst of gravitational waves. A lot brighter <laughs> uh, than the full moon. <laughs> uh, much, much brighter than the full moon if we were still around <laughs> to see it. There you would get out about 10 to the fifth times more energy than from this uh, event that LIGO saw. But it would be a much lower frequency because they're bigger black holes. So when they touch each other, they're orbiting each other at lower frequencies. And LISA would be able to see those out to the really early universe, redshifts above 10 or 20. So, And then at even lower frequencies, before they get into that final stage, they're black holes orbiting each other with periods of thousands of years, which one could detect from pulsar timing, for example. So how, how far off are we from creating a... Uh, a map, the equivalent of the Planck maps for the cosmic microwave background for the stochastic background of gravitational waves. Is that one of the ultimate aims of gravitational wave astronomy? So I, I think, so So Planck or similar experiments in the microwave background, there's a possibility that there were gravitational waves created at the end of the very early expansion of the universe, so the uh, <clears throat> so-called inflationary part of the universe. And Would that be before the surface of last scattering yeah so this would be they would be created long long before the cosmic microwave background so the cosmic microwave background had its last scattering when the universe was about four hundred thousand years old and these gravitational waves would have been created when the universe was maybe 10 to the minus 30 seconds old and have been propagating without being absorbed ever since but they would modulate they would move the surface of last scattering around a little bit. So there's an enormous effort uh, at Caltech and elsewhere looking for these polarization signals they might introduce in the in the cosmic microwave background. So those would be really low-frequency gravitational waves with periods of billions of years. <clears throat> there's also a possibility that in phase transition in the universe, which happened when the universe had to... Uh, again, long before the last scattering, when the temperature of the universe was corresponded to energies similar to that of the Large Hadron Collider of Terra Electron Volts, um, that there may have been a phase transition, so-called electroweak phase transition, which might also have produced gravitational waves if it was a first-order transition. Those would be squarely in the middle of the LISA laser interferometer space antennas frequency band, so there is a great interest in looking for a the stochastic background at that frequency, which would constrain models of particle physics. And then for the, there's also the background produced by all the binary black holes and binary neutron stars and everything in the universe. And there, I think it's probably more likely that we'll see individual sources. The thing which ultimately limits the sensitivity of the laser interferometer space antenna is actually the background of binaries 
binary stars in the Milky Way and in all the other Milky Ways throughout the universe, which produced just a noise from all these little white dwarves buzzing around each other with minutes to hour periods, and there's just so many of them in the universe that they produce an isotropic uh, din of noise, which means that there's not much point building an instrument more sensitive than that because there's already so much noise in the universe at those frequencies. It is very cool that up until now, the furthest we could look back in time was to the cosmic microwave background, but now potentially we have a window right back to the beginning of the universe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or a hearing aid. As or a, hear, or a hearing aid. <laughs> we can hear what was going yes. on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we better let you get on with your talk, um, okay. which you're about to give us coming to... Uh, coming to three o'clock so you'll be talking about what you just told us about which is msps and low mass x-ray binaries and their mm-hmm. co-relationship so thank you very much for joining us on the jodcast okay it's been a pleasure to be here thank so. you thanks for that ben and charlie okay so now we're coming to the part of the show where we usually fit in all the other bits we can't fit anywhere else uh but this show we're uh, gonna do something a little bit different so um as you're all aware, as you're all probably aware, um, on Thursday, uh, the United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union, um, which uh, is a, a huge decision um, that has huge consequences for pretty much everything in our lives. Uh, and we thought we'd have a little chat today about the consequences that uh, it's going to have for science and for, for what we think this is going to do uh, for UK science and, and where we think this is going. So... Um, so we've all uh, we've been having a little chat about this in the studio before we started recording today. I'm going to mention um, the statements that the Royal Astronomical Society and the Royal Society have made in relation to this. So um, both of them have just been pretty matter of fact. So we'll we'll link this uh, the show notes when we put those up on the on the website. Um, so the Royal Astronomical Society pretty much just says, you know, they made no formal recommendation um, to its members whether to vote remain or vote leave. They said, it's up to you, you know, um, although they do acknowledge um, that a lot of, they feel a lot of its members did want to remain. Um, I did see something somewhere that said 80 to 90% of scientists that were surveyed yeah. were vote remain. Yeah, yeah, that was, it was a big, um, I think it was... Um, a lot of scientists felt that way, and their statement now that um now that it's been confirmed that the UK will depart from the EU, um it, it's pretty impartial. They pretty much just say um that uh, the UK and European science benefit from the free movement of people between countries, uh, something that has allowed the UK research to become world leading. Although, for example, membership of the European Space Agency and European Southern Observatory is not contingent on EU membership. These organizations depend on international recruitment made easier by straightforward migration between countries. So in small words, I guess what they're really saying is, you know, we can still be members of these things. So, for example, uh, the European Space Agency is the is um, the group that sent Tim Peake uh, up into space. Welcome uh, back, Tim Peake. Hey, Tim Peake. <laughs> the UK can still be members of those. Um uh, I guess it's just a little bit more complicated. It will be more complicated now in terms of hiring mm-hmm. uh, non-UK staff um, or for UK um, citizens who want to go. For example, I think the headquarters of the ESA, is it the ESO or the ESA? One of them is based in Spain. I know that much. 
Yeah, so particularly as scientists are huge collaborators, and that's yeah. one of the main drivers of in the modern world. Uh, everything gets done, all this high-tech science research gets done by collaborating, and that often means well, the most efficient way to do that is to go and visit people throughout the world. Exactly. Okay? And, yeah. um, and so we've been quite, I think, fortunate to be able to travel freely throughout Europe. Yeah, and, um, I mean, obviously, we still visit places. Um, yeah, we're welcomed we in, in other countries yeah. throughout mm-hmm. the world who, who, where you might need visas for, but that, that still happens. Um, and, and now that's going to have to change. Um, depending on the negotiations that um, output, it may be more difficult um, to visit other countries for collaborations. I tell you, it's certainly not going to get easier, is it? No, I think we can say yeah. say that, and unless they keep the free movement, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. we're kind of speculating as to what exactly we we don't know. What's I, and I mean, that's that's really what I took away from both statements from both societies. They're like, we don't know what's going to happen now, yeah. and they've laid out. You know, for example, the Royal Society have pointed out that you know um, UK science in the past has been very well supported by EU funding. They point out that this has been an essential supplement to UK research funds. Yeah. One of the great strengths of UK research has always been its international nature. That, that they say they must make sure that yeah. um, that research uh, does not become shortchanged. That's the words yeah. they use um, once the UK leaves the EU, and that the funding that came from the EU, um, which which was um, not non-trivial, I think. Yeah. Um, so so I'll see the numbers there. Yeah, I was just gonna. Before I quote the numbers, one of the other phrases from that uh, document was, is, is this, science was above politics and withdrawal of scientific participation should never be used as political sanction. Yeah. I think that's quite important. Yeah, but yeah. so the, the numbers, so I'm, um, I'm reading this from, I'm reading Physics World magazine, and these numbers have also been quoted, I think, in that document as well. And it says that uh, the UK... Uh, this is strictly science research budget. The UK has contributed 5.4 billion between 2007 and 2013 to science, to science research. This, so this goes into the EU budget and received back 8.8 billion um, in grants, etc. Back so to the UK. specifically in terms yeah. of science, um, yeah. there was a net gain yes. for, yeah. so, for the UK. Yeah, so whilst in that same period, the total money given to the EU was 77.7 billion and the total money received back was 47.5 billion. So we, so the net loss was 30 billion. But science only mm-hmm. was a gain so that, of uh, 3.4 billion. So that net loss refers to like, I mean, presumably UK money contributed to all kinds of yeah, different everything, EU everything we put in and everything we get mm-hmm. back. But when you look specifically but, at science, we were getting more from you. Yes. Yes. So can I just say that I'm a Marie Curie Fellow, which is actually a European fellowship, an EU fellowship. That's right. And when I applied for the position or for the fellowship, that money comes from the EU and I could take this fellowship to any country within the EU. Mm-hmm. And so I've chosen to come to the UK because there's a fantastic group here that I wanted to work with. But... Um, and as far as I understand, as it's only a two-year fellowship, there's no immediate impact on me. But what I am concerned about is 
what about future applicants? They're going to apply for the Marie Curie Fellowship and they will they still be allowed to bring it to the UK? And I'd, I'd like to point out that the Marie Curie is pretty competitive. Um, you know, it's really... I got lucky. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but, you know, the Marie Curie is given to uh, really bright people yes. who really make contributions to science. You know, I think that yeah. definitely is a blessing. <laughs> <laughs> we can see it through your whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah. So one of the things I think we can be pleased about is if you look at other countries, um, if you look at, so this is for the ERC funds, um, if you look at the grants, so, so you can get an ERC grant without being in the European Union. Yeah. Um, so the way that works is that you, um, if you're in a European Union country, your country donates funds to the European pot, and that then is the e, called the European Research Council, gets distributed. Mm-hmm. If you're not in an EU country, you can still contribute to that scientific pot and receive the benefits and still apply for grants. Yeah. However, you cannot influence the distribution of that money. So if you want to influence where do the EU spend their research on, you have to be in the EU. Yeah, right. So that's one of the big worries of scientific people in the UK is they no longer can or they won't their voices won't yeah, be won't be heard oh, right. so they'll be able to tap in and collect that money but they're not allowed they won't be allowed to influence where that money is spent. and there are several there are several people uh, in Manchester here who are who are funded by ERC grants isn't that yes correct? me yeah. I'm, I'm an ERC ah, PhD student yeah. so I am funded from yeah. that pot yeah. yeah and I mean for my part I mean I'm I'm partially STFC funded and partially funded by the school um, because I am Irish so I'm not a UK citizen I was able to avail of, of, of that kind of funding because I was an EU citizen I guess all of us here in this room are kind of a uh, affected by this uh, in our, yeah. right. funding. Um, so another another fact um, is that the UK is the second largest recipient of European money, uh, research money, after Germany. So we're wow. really punching. We're really doing well in terms of bringing that European money into our right. country. Mm. But uh, on the spin side, so if you look at a country like Switzerland, who are not in the European Union, right? But they do contribute to the pot, so they do get ERC grants. Mm. And per capita, they receive more ERC grants than any other country. Interesting. So, so that's so they have a smaller, smaller, um, what do you call it, GDP. So yeah. They're, they're not as big as the UK, but um, it's perhaps a sign that, it, well, it's hard to say, but it might not be as disastrous or hard to predict in a country like Switzerland who just pays in to get the, the scientific grants. Right. So that brings me on to another thing. So this we talked about the money in and out for scientific funding and it, from 2017 to 2013. And if you look at the government fund, so the UK government funds into science and technology in that period is down 6%. And the money from EU is up 68%. So from 2007 to 2013, we've done really well in getting more and more money out of mm-hmm. EU grants, but we're not we're getting less money from the government. So the UK government itself has it's, decreased yeah. its funding of science. So the quote from Stephen Hawking is from a BBC News article uh, titled "The UK Science Wakes Up to New Future." Uh, the quote says that we've become reliant on EU funding. We get back a little more than we put in, and associated status will need to address this. But the other thing that we need to do and what UK academia needs to do is get much better at lobbying government. So I think his comment just relates to the stats we were just pulling out in that maybe the government needs to make sure science doesn't get left behind. Yeah. 
when we yeah. might not have such direct access to these grants. Well, yeah, absolutely. And um, I've always felt that the EU has always seemed to have a really positive attitude towards science. You know, it's 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 they consider yeah. it to be important. Uh, they they fund it. Um, well, you guys they, were saying earlier that science and technology really drive the economy. Yeah, absolutely, yep. absolutely. I think it's underestimated how much. I mean, we live in a world where. You know, we've had the internet for like a generation. Right. We've had yeah. Science and industry for only maybe four or five generations. Mm-hmm. So we're really in the new, you know, the new world in terms of pushing forward technology, right? And, yeah. and I think it's underestimated yeah. how much research into science and technology drives our everyday lives. Yeah. GPS, mobile phones, yeah. CCD cameras, Wi-Fi that you mentioned yeah. before, yeah. and even you know, blue sky research or you know, yeah. right. research that doesn't. Um, kind of directly contribute to something that'll make you a fast book. I mean, just to, just to kind of a slightly change the subject here for a second, mm-hmm. it's worth also noting um, how many international voices we've had on the Jodcast over the years, yes. both on this side of the microphone and on the other side. So we've, we've interviewed visitors from all over Europe and all over the world, and we've had participants from all over the world. Um, and... I would say the Jodcast, even though we're based here in Manchester, you know, definitely considers itself, you know, to be mm, without borders. Yep. So, and now, for something far above the EU, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. The Night Sky for July 2016. Well, I'm afraid there still aren't that many hours of darkness, But you do actually have a chance this month of spotting all five of the major planets, as we shall discuss a bit later. What about the sevens that you do see? Well, looking over towards the west, you'll see one bright star. It's called Arcturus in the constellation of Bootes. Fairly high up, actually. Towards the south, it's a pretty open area. It's actually the constellation Ophiuchus, but there are no really bright stars there. But if you move over from Arcturus towards the bright star, you'll see a little bit to the east of south, which is called Vega, again pretty high up. In between the two, there's a constellation of Hercules. I'll come back to it a little bit later. Vega is one of the stars that makes up what's called the Summer Triangle. Below Lyra, its constellation, is the constellation of Aquila, and the bright star there is Altair. And over and up a little bit, From Vega, you see a bright star called Deneb, which is the tail of Cygnus the Swan. So those three stars make up a a very nice um, triangle, as I said, the Summer Triangle. And that's a lovely part of the sky to actually look at. There are lots of nice features there. The Milky Way runs along through Cygnus, and uh, there's something called the Cygnus Rift, which is a rather dark region of the Milky Way. One thing you see against almost the darkest part is partway between Altair and Vega. If you go about a third of the way up between the two with binoculars, you should see what is called the coat hanger or Brocky's cluster. And it just looks like a little upside down coat hanger. It's a very nice thing to see. Rather sweetly, just down to the lower left of Cygnus uh, and up to the left of, of, of Altair is in fact a baby constellation called Delphinus the Dolphin. A little sort of rect, well, there's four stars making up the head and another two stars making up the tail. So those are the main stars to see. Um, the plough is up in the, the northwest at the moment and opposite Polaris, again, right up in the north, a little bit to the east is Cassiopeia, if you have a good northern horizon. 
and rising later is in fact the square of Pegasus. So that's a fair number of things to actually look for in the sky. What about the planets? Well, Jupiter, the first we could see, it's seen low in the western sky after sunset, shining at magnitude minus 1.9, with an angular diameter still of 34.3 arc seconds. Those obviously drop during the month down to minus 1.7 magnitudes and 32.1 arc seconds. About one hour after sunset, it'll be about 30 degrees above the horizon, so it's still fairly visible and high enough to see some of the the details on the surface, the equatorial bands, and you should see up to four of the Galilean moons. The great red spot, which is actually getting smaller, will be somewhat harder to spot unless the seeing and the transparency of the sky are good. Jupiter passes half a degree below the fourth magnitude star Sigma Leonis on July the 12th, and it's actually moving eastwards, nearly reaching the Leo-Virga border, by month's end. Well, Saturn was in opposition on June the 3rd. It lies some six degrees north of Antares, which of course is in Scorpius, in southern Ophiuchus, that rather bland part of the sky I mentioned earlier. It continues its retrograde motion westwards across the sky throughout July, narrowing its gap between Mars, which is now moving eastwards, from 19 degrees to 11 degrees as the month progresses. At the same time, the brightness drops a little, from magnitude plus 0.1 to plus 0.3, whilst its apparent diameter falls from 18.2 to 17.6 arc seconds. Though only at an elevation of 20 degrees when due south at about 11pm as July begins, and about 9pm at month's end, the beautiful ring system, now at an inclination of 26 degrees, is still worth observing. Now, Mercury passes behind the Sun, that's called superior conjunction, on July the 6th. But it should become visible, probably needing binoculars, about mid-month, when it sets about 45 minutes after sunset, and actually will lie just half a degree above Venus. During July's final week, it'll be seen to the upper left of Venus, and moves closer to Regulus, that's in Leo, until the two close to just 22 arc minutes apart, on the evening of July the 30th. Well, Mars can also be seen in the south-southwest after sunset, up to the right of Antares and the fan of Scorpius. It halted its western retrograde motion in Libra on June the 30th, and so July will be moving eastwards into Scorpius and ending the month some 10 degrees to the west of Antares. As we move further away, Mars fades from magnitude minus 1.4 to minus 0.8, and the disk shrinks from 16 to 13 arc seconds. Mars will be due south, and so highest in the sky, at about 9.30 BST on the 1st of July, still not really dark then, and even though its elevation is only about 19 degrees, a medium-sized telescope may still be able to see or image details on the surface such as the polar caps or Certis Major. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I imaged Mars using a webcam when it still had an angular diameter of 18 arc seconds. Visually, I could barely make out anything on the surface, but was actually very surprised how much became visible, having processed a thousand frame video sequences taken through red, green and blue filters. Well, Venus... Venus passed behind the Sun on the 6th of June. 
It becomes also visible in mid-month, low in the west-northwest, shining at minus magnitude 3.9 in the constellation of Gemini. It passes to the lower left of Pollux on the 13th, and actually passes through the beehive cluster M44 in Cancer on the 20th, ending the month 5 degrees to the west of Regulus in Leo. Finally, what about the highlights of the month? Well, July, it's still worth observing Saturn, but I would suggest you might take a trip to the Southern Hemisphere where it's wonderfully high in the sky so the atmosphere doesn't limit our view. A small telescope will show the rings at a magnification about times 25 and at one of 6 to 8 inches aperture with a magnitude of about times 200 coupled with a night of good seeing will show the ring system in its full glory. Like Jupiter, it has belts but their colours are very muted in comparison. The thing that makes Saturn stand out is, of course, its ring system. The two outermost rings, A and B, are separated by a gap called Cassini's division, which should be visible in a telescope of four or more inches aperture if seeing conditions are good. Lying within the B ring, but far less bright and difficult to spot, is the C or crate ring. Due to the orientation of Saturn's rotation axis of 27 degrees with respect to the plane of the solar system, the orientation of the rings, as seen by us, changes, and twice each orbit they lie edge on to us, and so can hardly be seen. Um, this last happened in 2009, and they are now nearly fully open, currently at an angle of 26 degrees to the line of sight. They will continue to open until May next year, and then narrow again until March 2025, when they'll appear edge-on again. I mentioned earlier that it's a good month to find two nice objects in the sky, the globular cluster in Hercules and the double-double in Lyra. There are four stars that make up the keystone in the constellation Hercules, and two-thirds of the way up is M13, which is the best globular cluster visible in the northern sky. Moving over to Vega, and just to its left is the multiple star system Epsilon Lyrae. With binoculars, a binary star system is seen, but with you observe with a telescope on a night of good seeing, each of those stars is resolved to be a double star, hence the name, the double-double. In early July, we still have a chance to see noctilucent clouds, also called polar mesopheric clouds. They're the highest clouds in the atmosphere, heights of about 80 kilometers. They're normally too faint to be seen, but they can become visible when illuminated by sunlight from below the northern horizon, whilst the lower parts of the atmosphere are in shadow. So on a clear, dark night, as light is draining from the northwestern sky long after sunset, take a look north and you might just spot them. On July the 1st, about one hour after sunset, Saturn and Mars make a nice triangle with Antares, just looking low towards the south. One hour after sunset on July the 8th, you'll see a thin crescent moon near Jupiter. You need a good low horizon in the west and obviously a clear sky. On the 16th of July, after sunset, Venus and Mercury are just half a degree apart You'll need a low horizon in the west-northwest. Venus, at magnitude minus 3.9, should be fairly easy to spot. And with binoculars, just above, 
I hope you might be able to spot Mercury. On July the 29th, before dawn, there's a thin, waning crescent moon close to Aldebaran and the Hyades cluster. About an hour before sunrise, looking above the eastern horizon, you should, again if clear, be able to spot this thin crescent moon very close to the Hyades cluster in Taurus, in which direction you'll actually see the orange giant star Aldebaran. Some hours later, if you happen to be in the southern United States, it will actually be seen to occult Aldebaran. July the 30th, after sunset, again given a low northwestern horizon, you should be able to see Mercury just 22 arc minutes above the star Regulus in Leo. Again, binoculars will almost certainly help, but please don't use them until the sun has set. And finally, something on the moon. On the nights of July the 13th and the 26th, the Terminator lies quite close to two of the great lunar craters, Tycho and Copernicus. Tycho is towards the bottom of the moon in a densely cratered area called the Southern Lunar Highlands. It's a relatively young crater, about 108 million years old. It has a diameter of 85 kilometres and is nearly 5 kilometres deep. A full moon, the rays of material that were ejected when it was formed, can be seen arcing across the surface. Towards the north, in Oceanus Procolarum, is the crater Copernicus. That's about 800 million years old and lies beyond the end of the Apennine Mountains. It's 93 kilometres wide and nearly 4 kilometres deep and is classed as a classic terrace crater. And both, of course, can be seen with binoculars, but you can make out more of the details with a small telescope. So, quite a bit to look for during July. I do hope you have some clear nights and can see some of the things I've mentioned. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our listeners below the equator, here's our Antipodean storyteller, Haratina Mogashanu, with the night sky where you are. Clear skies from Space Place at Kater Observatory in Aotearoa, New Zealand. My name is Haritina Mogoshanu, and tonight I am your storyteller from the Southern Hemisphere. In this podcast, I will talk about flying, since it is something I have always loved the most, besides the stars. This podcast is for Stephen, who also likes flying. I always look up for planes and stars all together and I've always been happiest in the air. And many times I forget that whilst I'm thinking that I'm sitting still here on Earth yearning to be there in the skies, our planet is moving at an incredible speed. Moving? But in relation to what? This is a good question. Well, to start with a point of reference, Earth is hurling at 30 kilometers per second orbiting around the Sun. We could measure these orbits and birthdays, one rotation, one birthday, so it takes Earth a year to go around the Sun once. The Sun also revolves around the Milky Way at 250 kilometers per second. So that means by the time we blink twice, we already covered the distance from Wellington to Rotorua. Since our galaxy is larger than that, it takes roughly 230 million Earth years to go around the Milky Way once. So, as a point of reference, one galactic year ago, the trilobites were swimming in Earth's oceans. The speed at which 
our solar system goes around the galaxy is not the fastest speed out there. According to Scientific American, the galaxies in our neighborhood are also rushing at about 1,000 kilometers per second towards a structure called the Great Attractor, a region of space roughly 150 million light years. One light year is about 9.5 trillion kilometers, so 150 million light years away from us. Now, in 1989, the Kobe satellite was sent in orbit around Earth to measure the long-diluted radiation echo of the birth of our universe, also known as the Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation, CBR. Kobe discovered that Earth is moving with respect to the CBR with 390 kilometers per second, and that is precisely towards the constellation known as Leo the Lion. So, for the first time, we have an absolute frame of reference, which is kind of answering the general question of how fast the Earth moves whilst I'm sitting still in Wellington, sipping what I think is the best coffee in the world, and dreaming about flying. I said I will talk about flying tonight. So, what are some of the wings in the sky? Out of all planets, Mercury is the winged messenger of the gods, but Mercury is hiding behind the Sun for the first half of the month. It will join Venus for the first half of July. Venus sets in the west about 25 minutes after the Sun at the beginning of the month, so might be seen from places with a low western skyline. Its setting time gets steadily later. By the end of the month, it sets more than an hour after the Sun. On the 17th, the two planets will appear close together. Mercury will be much fainter than Venus. On the 30th, 31st, Mercury will be passing Regulus, the brightest star in Leo. So all five naked eye planets will be in the early evening sky in the second half of July. Golden Jupiter appears in the north soon after sunset in Leo and orange Mars in the northeast in Libra. Cream-colored Saturn appears below and right of Mars as the sky darkens in Scorpio. Because they were visibly changing positions from one zodiacal constellation to another during the year, the planets were named Wanderers by the ancient Greek, which is what Planethos planet means. Yet only Mercury had wings at its feet as messenger of gods, alluding to the fact that Mercury was shifting position very fast in the sky. In terms of starry wings, there are many creatures out there among the asterisms imagined by humans. I will start with my absolute favorite object, which was discovered only a quarter of a century ago. That is, the Milky Way Kiwi. July its the time when the center of our galaxy, the Milky Way, is climbing all the way to Zenith and from there, if there is a truly dark night, you can see the Milky Way Kiwi. Now, you do need a very dark sky for that and you do need to know what you're looking for. Best you can see the Milky Way Kiwi in long exposed pictures of the night sky, but I have seen it with the naked eye from Lake Tekapo Earth and Sky. Before I came to New Zealand, I have not known it existed, 
I've always thought that the dark patch I was looking at, if I was lucky enough to see it, was a dark horse. Suspended in the fabric of space, the center of our galaxy only rose about 30 degrees above the horizon where I am from, near the 45 degrees north parallel. Besides, I did not even know what a kiwi bird was truly, let alone a celestial kiwi bird. Then one day, I had the chance to meet Ian Cooper, one of the first New Zealand's film astrophotographers, which means that he started imaging the night sky on film. He told me how people were taking pictures of the night sky, aiming at the center of the galaxy, and lo and behold, as they were looking at the final result, a kiwi bird took shape from the dark clouds of dust at the center of our galaxy. Now, if you turn the horse upside down, which is how we see the sky here compared to the northern hemisphere, it looks like a kiwi bird. I mean, if you know what that is. Ian told me how 25 years ago someone came up with the name. It was during the height of film in astrophotography and before the rise of the internet, so it was a slow burner, as they say. It is thought that some independently discovered the little bird more recently and got all excited, understandably. It is a pity that we don't know who first coined the name Milky Way Kiwi, but that is how it was in the olden days when I was young, he said to me. It's not the first time when people see birds in the sky. One of my favorite constellations is called Corvus the Crow. I always think of it as the Herald of Scorpius. I know that when I see Corvus in the eastern sky, Scorpius will follow soon. At this time of the year, just after sunset, Corvus is in the west, flying away from Virgo's arm towards Centaurus. To find it, look somewhere between Jupiter, located underneath Leo, and Mars in Libra. Near the tail of the crow lays one of the most beautiful deep sky objects, M104, Sombrero Galaxy. Corvus has four main stars. If you imagine them as an arrow, the star Algorab will be pointing straight at M104. The star Spica from Virgo, which is now halfway through between Jupiter and Mars, can also be a great visual aid to find M104, as the galaxy is a third from Algorab and two-thirds from Spica. Another favorite of mine is Cygnus the Swan. It's my home zenith constellation back in the Northern Hemisphere, where it is also known as the Northern Cross. Cygnus is juxtaposed on the Milky Way. Very low on the horizon here, its main star, Deneb, is barely grazing the Earth, looking as if it's a slow-moving flame that braises the land with the galaxy. It rises one hour after midnight, as seen from Wellington, New Zealand. A tad higher than Deneb, my favorite double star, well, actually triple, Albireo, it's resolved in telescopes as one aqua blue and one orange star. That's a sight worth seeing at least every night when Albireo is in the sky. Aquila, the eagle, it's another beautiful bird that flies in the northern part of the sky, low on the horizon, rising just after 8 p.m., Right at its tail, there is NGC 6751, a planetary nebula that looks just like an iris. 
Altair is the brightest star in Aquila and it's on the Milky Way. Opposite Deneb and Altair on the southwestern part of the evening sky, Sirius is setting whilst Canopus is descending from heavens. In between Sirius and Canopus, it's the constellation Columba. The cat and the dog are chasing the dove, which is what Columba means. For deep sky observing, near Faet, the Alpha star, brightest star from Columba, there is a beautiful spiral galaxy, NGC 1808. Delicate and rich in optical double stars that we can see with the naked eye, Grus the crane is another bird constellation laying now on the southeastern horizon. From Capricornus, that looks just like a gold flag from here, hop two more blocks, passing another favorite star of mine, Formalhaut, the loneliest star in Piscis Austrinus, and then next stop south is Grus. I remember seeing Grus in a picture for the first time whilst Comet McNaught was here in New Zealand in 2006 and getting very excited about being able to recognize it by the multiple double stars in it. And since we are at the southern side of the sky, to be fair, as much as I don't like them, Muska, the fly, also qualifies for a flying creature. Near the southern cross, Muska looks like a patrulater, a small one peering inside the Colsac. At the end of its abdomen, NGC 4833, it's a rather nice globular cluster. Near Muska, Apus, the bird of paradise's name, literally means no feet in Greek, as it was once wrongly believed that the birds of paradise lack feet. Apus is pointing straight at Pavo, the peacock, that is flaunting its feathers all over the south celestial circle. Next to Pavo, it's Tucana, near the small Magellanic cloud, NGC 292. Some spectacular deep-sky objects near it are the famous NGC 104, also known as 47 Tucane, but also NGC 362, another globular cluster, NGC 346, open cluster, NGC 290, open cluster, and NGC 265, open cluster. Tucana is neighboring Grus on one side, and the phoenix on the other side. Since Herodotus, the Greek historian, the bird of phoenix was associated with the sun. A phoenix obtains new life by arising from the ashes of its predecessor and it can live for 1,400 years at the time. Inside the constellation NGC 55, it's an irregular galaxy and NGC 300 is a spiral galaxy. The main star in Phoenix, Anka, is almost halfway through Akenar and Formalhaut. And there is also a flying fish, Volans. Its tail is pointing at the large Magellanic cloud and its head is halfway through between Mia Placidus and Avior in Carina. And last but not least, I don't know for sure if unicorns can fly, but I thought I'd mention the elusive Monoceros, the unicorn, just in case. It is between Sirius and Orion, and its stars are so faint that I have always just barely made the shape of it. Monoceros is visible on the morning sky. Faint or bright, all these asterisms are made of stars. 
tiny little shapes on the sky, in a world divided by mountain ridges and landmarks they gave small patches, these have morphed into the traditional constellations. There are officially 88 of them, and they do not change with seasons or latitude, but they are small and numerous. Down under, however, in the outbacks of Australia, people had a different perspective. It is said here that astronomy didn't start with the Greeks. Thousands of years earlier, Aboriginal people scanned the sky using its secrets to survive the Australian landscape. They do have a total perspective on the night. There is an emu out there that covers the entire sky made by the shape of the dark and lit parts of the galaxy. Look closely at the Southern Cross and you will see its head as a dark smudge tucked near the bottom left-hand corner of the asterism. Its neck passes between the two pointer stars and its dark body stretches the length of our luminous galaxy. Maori too looked at dark patches in the sky, what we know as the Colsac, a dark region near the Southern Cross, it's actually a flounder for them. But a dark patch that looks just like a kiwi bird, that is something that perhaps not too many people saw coming. Not too many people from New Zealand, I mean, because as I have discovered, and I said before, being shown a kiwi bird, very little foreigners, and I'm not counting the tourists here, can guess what it is. It looks like it's not an easy task to be the Milky Way Kiwi. After all, it carries the center of the galaxy on its head, right on top of the head of our imaginary bird, just like a crown. It's Sagittarius A, which is the home of a bright and very compact astronomical radio source at the center of the Milky Way, near the border of the constellation Sagittarius and Scorpius. Sagittarius A is thought to be the location of a supermassive black hole, ours. So, the Milky Way Kiwi does carry all the weight of our stars. Not surprising even what its equivalent on Earth the Kiwi bird did. There is a beautiful Maori legend telling how the Kiwi bird lost his wings. One day... Tanamahuta was walking through the forest. He looked up at his children reaching for the sky and he noticed that they were starting to sicken as bugs were eating them. He talked to his brother Tanehokahoka who called all of his children the birds of the air together. Tanemahuta spoke to them. Something is eating my children the trees. I need one of you to come down from the forest roof and live on the floor so that my children can be saved and your home can be saved. Who will come? All was quiet and not a bird spoke. Tanehokahoka turned to Tui. Hey Tui, will you come down from the forest roof? Tui looked up at the trees and saw the sun filtering through the leaves. Tui looked down at the forest floor and saw the cold, dark earth and shuddered. Kao Tanehokahoka, for it is too dark and I am afraid of the dark. Tanehokahoka turned to Pukeko. Pukeko, will you come down from the forest roof? Pukeko 
looked down at the forest floor and saw the cold, damp earth and shuddered. Gao Tanehoka Hoka, for it's too damp and I do not want to get my feet wet. All was quiet and not a bird spoke. Tanehoka Hoka turned to Pipi Farauroa. Pipi Farauroa, will you come down from the forest roof? Pipi Farauroa looked up at the trees and saw the sun filtering through the leaves. Pipi Farauroa looked around and saw his family. Kao Tanehoka Hoka, for I am busy at the moment building my nest. All was quiet and not a bird spoke. And great was the sadness in the heart of Tanehoka Hoka, for he knew that if one of his children did not come down from the forest roof, not only would his brother lose his children, but the birds would have no home. Tanehoka Hoka turned to Kiwi. Eh, hey, Kiwi, will you come down from the forest roof? Kiwi looked up at the trees and saw the sun filtering through the leaves. Kiwi looked around and saw his family. Kiwi looked at the cold, damp earth. Looking around, once more, he turned to Tanehoka Hoka and said, I will. Great was the joy in the hearts of Tanehoka Hoka and Tanemahuta for this little bird was giving them hope. But Tanemahuta felt that he should warn Kiwi of what would happen. Eh, hey, Kiwi! Do you realize that if you do this, you will have to grow thick, strong legs so that you can rip apart the logs on the ground and you will lose your beautiful colored feathers and wings so that you will never be able to return to the forest roof. You will never see the light on day again. All was quiet and not a bird spoke. Eh, Kiwi! Will you come down from the forest roof? Kiwi took one last look at the sun filtering through the trees and said a silent goodbye. Kiwi took one last look at the other birds, their wings and their colored feathers and said a silent goodbye. Looking around once more, he turned to Tanehoka Hoka and said, I will. Then Tanehoka Hoka turned to the other birds and said, Etui, because you were too scared to come down from the forest roof, from now on you will wear the two white feathers at your throat as the mark of a coward. Pukeko, because you did not want to get your feet wet, you will live forever in the swamp. Pipifarauroa, because you were too busy building your nest, from now on, you will never build another nest again, but lay your eggs in other birds' nests. But you, Kiwi, because of your great sacrifice, you will become the most well-known and the most loved bird of them all. Thank you for listening to the July 2016 podcast. Until next time, kia ora! and Kia Kaha from Space Place at Carter Observatory in the Southern Hemisphere. Thanks for that, Haratina. And now on to the feedback. 
Uh, so we've got no post, um, no emails. That's so sad. I know. I know. I hate this. I hate it when you guys don't send us post. Uh, we do have a Facebook. Um, this 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 person, this lovely person, made a YouTube video that featured part of our show. Um, so they said, "Hi, Jobcast. Love the show and listen from Kenya every month. Particularly enjoyed this month's interview with Toa Waki." So much so that I selected a snippet and attached some footage of the ISS after a friend asked how to reply when someone asks, how do we know the Earth is not flat? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would just say, well, keep walking, buddy. <laughs> try walking that way for a really long yeah. time. <laughs> uh, I hope you don't mind. It's the top post here and you can see it at www.facebook.com slash the traveling telescope. Yeah, I love, I love those videos of the Earth from that. Yeah, I know. They're so exciting. Sometimes yeah. I put them on when I just want to relax. Yeah. And you can see There's all the nice music videos. Aurora and, uh, and then... Lightning and the exactly. lights. Yeah. Yeah. I really want to see Aurora. I would love to see it. I thought we were far enough north now, but apparently it's because no. the sun doesn't have The very hair. odd time. The very odd time it makes its way down here. Uh, I saw it once in Ireland, but like oh. unless someone had pointed out to me that that's what I was looking at, I wouldn't oh. have known that's what it was. Um, okay, so uh, on Twitter, uh, we had Jen Gupta. Um, and she's just pointed out, just past the sign of a knock-in, and for a moment was transported back in time to the epic journey that was at the Jodcast e-merlin road trip. Oh, yeah, we featured that on the, on the live show, actually. Uh, they, um, they went to we all the e-merlin dishes? We certainly mentioned it, yeah. They took a road trip around all the e-merlin oh, dishes and they filmed it. I'd cool. love to do that. I know, yeah, no, it's cool. It's always fun. I've, the only other one I've seen is Defford. Hi to all our new followers, and thanks for all the retweets and favourites. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jobcast.net. You can find us on iTunes. Please review us. Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. Um, YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget, please don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. I'm going to send us a postcard. Oh, please do. Actually, you know, this is it. Like, I kept on meaning. I meant to send us a postcard from New Mexico when I was at the DLA. Oh, I was at the DLA two, two weeks ago. And uh, I was like, oh, I should definitely send the jodcast postcard from the DLA. But I didn't. So I'm just as much to blame as everyone yeah. here. We're very sad. You could have been opening your own post. <laughs> yeah, right I could have like, oh, we've got some posts from New Mexico. Who could this be from? Oh. <laughs> it's like when you lose your phone and then you ring it to find it. And then you find it. And you're like, I've got a missed call. <laughs> I was the only one. <laughs> no, I do that all the time. I'm the only person who calls me. <laughs> anyway, um, so thanks to Stel Finney for the interview. Thanks to Ian Morrison and Haratina Mugashani for the night skies, uh, and Sarah Nakuda for the website write-ups. The editors were Benjamin Shaw, Monique Hansen, Haratina Mugashani, and Charlie Walker. The producer was Benjamin Shaw. And until next time, John. John. Thank you.